Falkland War has started. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne eats a bat on stage. A new British prince is being born. Margaret Thatcher's son returns home after being lost in the Sahara for six days. Laker Airlines collapse. Agatha Christie becomes a president of Malta and Dark Side of the Moon. Yes, that album that lasts for all time has been in the charts for 402 weeks, which is seven years. 1982, the Doobie Brothers split up. Uh, what a shame. The world's loudest recorded human shout is by Susan Birmingham in 1982, 120 dB. Rod Stewart is mugged by gunpoint. $50,000 Porsche is stolen from him. John Hinckley's trial begins for shooting President Reagan. In 1982, Colin Wilson rides a surfboard for 294 miles. E.T., the movie, is released. Blade Runner is also released. In San Francisco, the first gay games are held. And in 1982, the first issue of the magazine USA is published. Cats opens on Broadway. And Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, they released The Girl is mine. Michael Jackson also releases Thriller in 1982 and in Jamaica a Bob Marley postage stamp is issued. But the most important thing that happened in 1982 was this.
another spaceship is landing. It's landing. Or it's lifting off. I think it's landing. So this is a Radio Owlsner special. I've wanted to do this for a long time. Uh, the Q-Phil album. My Q-Phil album that was released with my in, in 1982, my band Q-Phil. Um, I'm going to talk about that album and all the tracks, all the individual tracks, uh, what I can remember about recording that album in the incredible 80s. Everything I can recall about making that record, uh, I'm going to try and dig up on this Radio Owlsner special, the Q-Phil special, the Q-Phil album that spawned the hit, uh, the underground hit, but also the iconic, I think, hit that everybody believes was a hit and seems to have been a hit without me knowing it, Dancing in Heaven, Orbital Bebop. And that's just what you heard starting the show off. I'm going to go through the album the way the uh, sequencing uh, was on the album uh eight songs were on the record um dancing in heaven actually uh, started side two um so i'm gonna go now uh through every individual track uh, in the way it was sequenced back then when we released that record and when we get to side two i'll play uh, the album version of dancing in heaven as well now this period for me was uh, such a seminal period um i'd been in various bands um as a bass player um, in a band called Cabasa in Oxford in the 70s, a band called Bronx in Bristol, and then I came to London and joined a band called CMB and uh, wanted really to be a session bass player. But in that period, early 80s, music was changing and um, everything was changing with technology. And as I was um, write, started to write songs in a flat uh, in London, Islington, a nine Ockenden Road, top flat, yes, I was right, started to write songs with a little Casio. Casio Tone keyboard called a Casio Tone 202. Um, I discovered electronic music and I was writing music on this little teeny synth with my partner who I'd met in the band CMB, a guitarist from Scotland called Brian Fairweather. I bought a TAC 4 track and a little mixer and a little reverb unit and uh, I made demos in that flat with Brian helping me write this uh, Q-Phil album. Um, and I took these songs around to different publishers um, and wanted to get a publishing deal, really, as a songwriter. But these songs were forming, and um, we eventually got signed to Jive Records, uh, Zomba Publishing. Chrysalis Records nearly signed us, and Chrysalis Publishing, but we eventually went to Jive Records, Clive Corder and Ralph Simon, a South African company, actually that was just starting up in London and they wanted to do a record deal with us as well as songwriters and we released a single called Doctor on the Radio which is nothing nothing to do with the kind of Q-Phil record we made and what I'm playing today it was a reggae ska record called Doctor on the Radio and it sold five copies uh, just outside Paris um, so it wasn't a great launch for Q-Phil and I'll talk about the name Q-Phil and all that stuff a little bit later down the line um, but we were allowed to make a another single and that became Dancing in Heaven Orbital Bebop which was not a ska record or a reggae record or a punk record it was totally techno and I'll get into why suddenly Q-Phil became not a reggae ska band or a punk band became a techno uh, new wave band um, and we wrote Dancing in Heaven and that became our second single but uh, without me going too far along with the history and the story of all this I'm going to start by playing track one that was on the Q-Phil album and it's a track called Crosstalk <laughs> Crosstalk 
Well, I think there's going to have to be two parts to this special because there's so much to talk about and so much um, I can still recall. And I'd like to tell you all about that. So I think it might, this show may, even though it's only eight tracks, uh, but there are kind of um, dub versions and different versions of tracks that I might want to play. So this may turn into a two-part series cross talk the first track on the q phil album um the poltergeist movie had uh just come out as well in 1982 and uh, on the back of our album cover there's a phrase that says something inside me loves a mystery and i remember so that poltergeist movie hit me and i thought well it's all new technology and i like that i like where this is coming from and it's quite eerie and mysterious and something about uh, new wave music um it's going to be it sort of ties in i think with all this poltergeist and et and uh oh, i don't know i was just hit by the scientific movement and how music in the studio with all the different technologies we were using um was vibrant and uh I just thought that Q-Feel, the, the band that uh, already had a failure with the first single, Doctor and Radio, although five were sold just outside Paris in France, um, I thought uh, we need a new di- direction. And um, Ultravox, I was very touched by um, and very influenced by this band. And they had a single called All Stood Still. And um, I thought, ah, you can hear in Dancing in Heaven, there's a vibe going on uh, that I was influenced by, particularly the tempos and the way the bass uh, was pl- was uh, doing great, great, great riffs. Um, so everything was changing at that time, you know, and Tom Dolby's album, The Golden Age of Wireless, um, my God, that album, I think, is the Sergeant Pepper of new wave music. That album um, had the, the, the romance and great, great, great songwriting on it. And, of course, all the sounds, um, Blinded by Science, the single, um, the sounds were just so um, captivating and new and fresh. And so the 80s was becoming a bit of a revolution. And I thought uh, for our next record uh, with Jive Records, we have to win, we have to do well, and uh, let's change our style totally and go in this direction. And with this little keyboard I had, the Casio Tone 202, that just had pre-programmed sounds in it, I was able to make some demos on the four track with Brian Fairweather that really sounded like we had some something quite special building up and you have to remember at that point there were bands coming out like japan and the, and the sounds were so different and uh wang chung which were called hung chung hung chung at that time we heard those albums and we thought mm, good gracious something's going on this is a revolution which it actually was the beginning of a revolution now to cross talk the first track you just you just heard there um I remember that in the studio we used a Roland vocoder string machine to get all those screams and backward sounding uh, ominous um, uh, poltergeist kind of vibe going on. And uh, you can hear in the middle eight, that's Brian, the guitarist, uh, speaking backwards, actually, uh, whispering, if you listen very carefully. Um, and Trevor Thornton, uh, our drummer, our live drummer, uh, in fact, he he programmed some wonderful drum rhythms, unusual in, the, in, this, uh, in this track, on a Fairlight computer at John Congus's studio, Tapestry Studios in southwest London. Now, John Congus had the third, I believe, Fairlight, CMI Fairlight, 
synthesizer in the country and this was an incredible sampling machine and we were uh, almost ordered by a record company to go to tapestry studios uh, and work our songs up on the fairlight computer and so we used a lot of the samples um, that were in for drums that were in the computer and have been used by Mutt Lang and Def Leppard on the Pyromania record John Congress was involved in that so my drummer Trevor Thornton and Chris Richardson my keyboard player they got to know the Fairlight better than I could or Brian could because they read music and they were very interested in how it was done so on Crosstalk what you're hearing on the drums is programmed through a fair on a Fairlight by um, uh, Trevor Thornton our drummer and um, John Congress helped him to develop that uh, to do it because you have to write things in with numbers and stuff it was all very new at that point but so what you're hearing there are actually the drums of Def Leppard Pyromania the snare and the bass drum being used on our song Crosstalk Tapestry Studios owned by John Congress who was a South African artist who had two hits big hits we know Tokoloshi Man and He's Gonna Step On You Again he had this studio uh, set up uh, purely really to uh, to u- utilize the fairlight and we did that at the beginning of the Qfil album we got the rhythm tracks done at uh, tapestry um, by using uh, programming the fairlight for all our drums and bass and little bits uh, around the edges horns and sequences and then we took all that back to battery studios which was jive studios did vocals and all the other stuff and guitars that we wanted to do um, I'll talk about that a little bit later but crosstalk I think I, I wrote it in the in the key of B, which is unusual for me. The whole riff is all more to do with a riff in B than more of a, a chordal thing. It was released first as a dance rock track, as a 12-inch, to get America, Jive Records said, a little bit excited about the album that was going to come because Dancing in Heaven had already been out and started the vibes, and they said Crosstalk will get the rock fraternity in America interested, and it did. My parents, who lived in Washington, D.C., they even heard it and called me and said, your music's being played here in the States. We heard it. So I was very thrilled about that. Um, when I sing on this song, because uh, I wasn't really sure who, if I was going to be the lead singer for the band, you can hear on my thing, Hold On, that my vo- the vocal's breaking up. I'm really giving it my all. Um, I remember hearing that on the headphones and going, oh, it's a bit breaking up, but it had quite a good vibe to it. The guitars by Brian are so thematic and theme-oriented. A bit of the old flock of seagulls going on there are label mates, and we put a lot of those guitars in reverb and, and delays for atmosphere. I really uh, think Brian did a great job there uh, with arranging it as well. Um, and we wanted to create a creepy kind of, uh, again, poltergeist kind of vibe to start the album off with, and a, min- a mixture really of sequencing and rock guitars, uh, modern rock as they saw it at that time. And uh, we were also using a wave um keyboard synthesizer that um, Tom Dolby used a great deal and we like the sound of that wave that was used on this track along with as I said before a Roland vocoder and a Roland string machine and uh, probably my Casio tone was involved in some small way as well I can't reiterate strong enough that we were looking for on this whole album was really a kind of something inside me loves a mystery this sense of UFOs and poltergeists and 
and mysteries in computers. Uh, we thought that Crosstalk uh, reflected a great deal about what was happening with computers, that they will eventually become our masters. And uh, that leads me on to the next track, which is called A New Science. And that's totally what this song, A New Science, is about. It's about being controlled and totally taken over by um, computer programs. Um, and it starts off with the keyboard player, Chris Richardson, who had a very deep voice. We used him saying, my brainchild, on the beginning. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a bit more about this track after. But I do lean a lot on that science vibe that Tom Dolby was uh, definitely touching upon. But um, also the track was trying to say, in our naive way back then, is beware, we're going to be controlled by the internet. <laughs> computers. This is called A New Science.
That's track two on side one of the Q-Fill album made in 1982. This is a Radio Owl's Nest special looking into that album and trying to reveal some of the things that uh, happened around that time and what I can remember. When you think about it, The Matrix, I think... uh, that's really what we were talking about is that eventually um, the computer will be you and your bloodstream will be the internet and uh, all that strange kind of stuff that somehow seems to be like it might still happen or is happening so how weird is that Um, tremendously influenced I must admit I have to admit to this by Tom Dolby's album The Golden Age of Wireless and of course the song Blinded by Science I'm even saying science science in the in the track so ah, I have no no what shame shame no I do have shame No, it, it is shame. No shame. No, it is shame. Uh, I was definitely uh, so turned on by Tom Dolby's work. I mean, think about it. Um, one of our submarines is missing. Um, oh, my God. That whole album really, really hit me. Pirates, uh, Europa, Europa and the Pirate Twins and uh, uh, Wind Power. Ugh, what a record. Um, we used, as I said, the PPG Wave keyboard a great deal on this. Um, and I can remember when we took the track back to Battery Studios to do the second batch of over- overdubs, guitars and me singing and harmonies and all that, um, we'd copied the demo I did on a four track. And I must try and find those demos. They're somewhere in a cassette box in my attic. Um, but it wasn't happening for me um the track um the only track on the album wasn't this wasn't happening for me when we got it back to battery even though we've been copying the four track demos i'd done with brian on the casio um and i realized that i had to make a decision uh, there and then i was nearly going to scrap the song i thought this isn't working and i tried to think i can remember so well thinking i have to rearrange this on the spot because you know in the studio in those days you have to do it um you can't yeah you know go away and think about things it has to be done then so i remember for about half an hour as the track was being worked on thinking this isn't right and um I suddenly sprouted up and told the team and the lads, I said, we've got to do this differently. And the key to me was that I was filling out all the chords in the in the song, padding it out, and I just that just felt too uh, blocky and thick, and we needed the track to be more minimal and get out some of the riffs. And so I, uh, I created a theme um, uh, line on the synth that insinuated the chords uh, and didn't block it out as thick. And I remember Brian believing as well that that is a good idea. And we opened the whole track. It became minimal. And in fact, it's really different to the four track. I'm very proud of myself because I felt like this isn't good enough. But I don't have an answer. And I remember saying to Brian, I know we've got to do this differently, but I don't know what to do. Um... I felt like a a captain on the football team going, we're losing and we need to change, but I don't know what to do. Um, But suddenly it appeared to me that we had to dive into the thickness and the pads and uh, filter it out and do more theme work instead of it being blocky and fat with just uh, chord inversions. And the tracks started to come together then and I thought, ah, we've saved it. And so I was very grateful that Brian and the rest of the lads and the engineers um, allowed me to 
to have a panic attack and say give me 30 minutes but we if we're going to save this song we have to look at it real real different it's interesting to me as well i'm a bass player but um when we went to do these tracks because i'd written them uh on this small synthesizer i was th- th- very happy with all the basses being synth bass oriented although later on the record you'll hear some live bass playing on tracks called Heroes Never Die and Red Light Zone when, when we decided that, that we wanted some live playing on the album. But most of the bass, basses on this record are synth basses that were um, made um, at the Tapestry Studios on the Fairlight. Although Dancing in Heaven, which was released before the album, was played on a Moog synth bass by Chris Richardson, our, our keyboard player, and everything was live. We didn't sync anything on Dancing in Heaven, and you would have thought we did, but we played everything live, and that's a synth bass that I'd, I'd created, and uh, Chris on a Moog synthesizer um, uh, brought that track to life. And on Dancing in Heaven, I know I'm jumping forward, but that's uh, Jupiter 8 and an Oberheim OB-8 playing keyboards on that for all you nerds out there. We hadn't got to the stage of uh, using the Fairlight on these tracks. And yes, that's Trevor Thornton playing live drums on Dancing in Heavenly. That's what I can remember at this point of um, track number two on side one of the Q4 album, A New Science. My brain hurt. No, my brain doesn't hurt. It's my brain child. And uh, now on to track three uh, with the wonderful title of electric feet rhythm machine ah yeah you don't, they don't make them like that anymore do they no they don't the electric feet rhythm machine i remember uh, when we finished this track that the record company a guy called stephen howard said i really like this but you need to make this more like the thompson twins a song they had called in the name of love in the name of in the name of in the name of love and he said if you're going to hit the top of the american dance charts which the thompson twins had with that track it has to be like that or more like billy idol I think Billy Idol had a track called Dancing Something and it was top of the charts. And we rebelled and said, no, we aren't like, in the name of it, we aren't, we aren't the Thompson Twins and we're not Billy Idol. Um, so uh, we mixed the song how we saw it. Um, this is about somebody who can really dance. And about, um, remember a robot, really, a robot dancing. Remember in those days in America, there was a lot of really fantastic break dancing about to appear. And we had Michael Jackson doing his moonwalk and we thought what about a person who is a machine and he's a rhythm machine and he has electric feet and um yes yes we were young kids we believed in anything anyway this is called electric feet rhythm machine
That's Electric Feet, a rhythm machine. And that is track uh, three on uh, Q Phil's uh, debut album, the only album we made, unfortunately. Um, and here we are on Radio Owl's Nest many, many, many years ago. Uh, songwriters podcast, my band talking about it, a special part one. I think we possibly have to have a part two. We'll see. What can I remember about that track? I do know it's in D minor and it was in a minor key because the bass is a little bit funky. Another thing, that's the thing about uh, QFIL. I always thought that uh, Ultravox and a lot of the bands that were coming out at that time that were uh, tech, techno and new wave were quite stiff and cold. And I thought Dolby's, Tom Dolby's record was uh, underlined uh, funk and soul from America. And that's how I saw QFIL. Very funky, really. Um, techno, but funky as well. Just underneath the belly of it, I did, did think that we had an American... Um, kind of feel and I think that's why QPhil had more success in America we, we saw ourselves really as a mid-Atlantic or slightly yes American band uh, that came from the cold areas of Europe <laughs> does that make any sense I don't know um, Brian's playing solo guitar there at the end great guitar I remember saying you've just got to play a solo Brian on the end you've just got to do it you've got to fill it up and he was like really really but he did I remember he had a twin reverb amp that's the only amp we had uh, that we wrote with and brought from um, his house to my house bloody heavy things and then we used that in the studio he had a black les paul which i loved because it had a richness about it a black les paul guitar always reminded me of thin lizzy for some reason um <laughs> bizarre thought but that's how i saw brian uh, adding to the track here playing that great rock guitar um, there's a great singer called Steve Lang who was working with us uh, she's a, the lady who's singing Orbital Bebop on the uh, Dancing in Heaven track much higher than that um, we used her for demos as well and she came in the studio and heard us working on this and she said who's playing lead guitar I said my Scottish mate there and she said really and I said yeah Brian Fairweather she said great playing great playing and she'd been around some amazing players and that's Brian doing all those little vocal um, speaking things around the edge, suck you in, psych you out, and I'll, I've started, I'll finish, so I'll finish. I love that. I love that line. There was a little bit of humour in Q, Phil. There's no doubt about it. Now I listen back. Some tracks had an element of that quirky humour. That was nice to find. Um... Um, uh, I, do, I do want to talk about the engineers, actually, that we were working with at that, that time. Mostly Nigel Green, who went on to do brilliant work again with Def Leppard. And, uh, in fact, uh, he, he worked throughout the album and mixed most of the album, well, all the album, except for the track Dancing in Heaven, which the, the great Mike Shipley uh, recorded for us uh, and mixed that track. So we had Nigel Green and Mike Shipley. And the assistant engineer uh, was a guy called Matt Wallace. We called him Matt Wallace on the album To The Bakers because we used to send him out nearly every day to get great, great bakery uh, stuff for us to eat. Yes, we put on tremendous amount of weight making this album. Uh, Matt, <laughs> who lives now, I believe, in Australia, sometimes he writes to me... Um, on my Instagram and he looks as he did then uh, a, a punk he looks like a crazy Australian English punk um, but Matt's uh, was our assistant engineer and he, we all had a great amount of fun I must admit there was a lot of laughter very lucky to have Nigel Green who I still speak to as well and lives in Colorado and uh, with Mike Shipley and Mark Wallace Matt Wallace sorry uh, he'll never forgive me Matt to the Bakers Wallace we all had a great laugh um, 
when you're assistant engineer uh, you go through hell with bands um so matt had to put up a lot with us because we picked on him irreverently all the bloody time uh he must have thought oh my god here we go with q phil again and uh but he did go and pick up some great buns uh, uh some great bakery items um thank you matt if we didn't thank you we want to thank you now and on the album we said nigel mono green because we said that we thought he mixed a stereo album almost in mono well he didn't but we were uh, it seemed to us that mike shipley did a lot of spreading out and nigel used to focus focus stuff more in the middle and we were like pan it the left and right and uh and he did but minimally we thought and so he got the title we gave everybody names nigel mono green and uh i still think him as nigel monophonic green uh, <laughs> but they're all lovely lads lovely to have a great team doing that record and i think about also that brian fairweather and myself q phil the two of us which it really was with trevor and uh chris richardson augmenting us we were the producers so um jive records must have had some faith in us from hearing the demos that we should produce ourselves and we must have been very very focused on being producers because you know lots of bands could say find us a great producer but i think um we believed that we should uh, produce it which is interesting to me we must have been very stubborn in those days i also realized that the battery studio where we were doing all the guitars and the finish finishing up and the album mixing and uh, vocals etc um, was we were working on 16 track because I looked at a little track sheet that I found of uh, the actual track Dancing in Heaven and I'm working out where everything has to be you know all the drums have to be in on two tracks and with the bass has to be on one background vocals stereo um, guitars maybe two tracks it was all worked out uh, ahead of time which was amazing we used to, I used to always do that with Brian we'd work out ahead of time when we did every track exactly how it would finish up and 16 tracks was this album was recorded on 16 tracks tracks which was hard to, for me to believe because i think you, I, you always think 24 or even more but we were in 16 tracks for this album now for the name q phil the name of the band you're all wondering aren't you what the f does q phil mean well it's a aeronautical term my father worked for british aerospace and nasa later on in his career and um uh, he went that's what brought me to america really because my dad was traveling a lot to the american marines and uh, uh, they were selling the british aerospace harrier vertical jump jet to the americans and my father was even teaching uh, a lot of the uh, pilots who were going to become astronauts for nasa on the harrier jump jet um, because there was a very unusual plane to fly so my dad had all this knowledge about airplanes and i just thought i'll ask my dad because me and brian were trying to find a, a name for the band i'll see what he thinks and he took it very seriously and about uh, a day later he said q feel and i said well that's quite interesting i like the, the letter q because it's it's right back down there in the alphabet more unique i like q i like quincy jones and feel we're a funk kind of feel kind of band and i said but what does it mean dad and he said it's the power that a a pilot feels on his joystick that sounds rather sexy doesn't it um but <laughs> how did i get there um uh, so the joystick that a 
is uh, uh, that a pilot is holding to, um, to turn left and right. It, there's a power that comes into the joystick that actually fights the pilot so that when he and gives him pressure so that if when he's turning left and right or uh, making quick turns up and down, the plane doesn't break up from the power and from the force on the airplane. So Q feel is built into the joystick. I thought that sounds wonderful, wonderful. I wouldn't mind Q feel being built into my joystick. That sounds fun. Um, but I told Brian about it. I said, well, I think Q-Feel sounds quite interesting. He said, I like it. I like it straight away. So my dad came up with the name. It's a real aeronautical um, uh, airplane pilot phrase. Uh, Q-Feel is to do with uh, feeling the force. I also liked that. I thought it's a force field. And so um, we took the name Q-Feel. Um, there you go. Now on to track four, which is actually the end of side one. Can you believe it? A, uh, a vinyl record had four tracks on it on one side. Amazing. You can put millions on now that we stream in the digital age. But this was track four, and it was called Go For It. And it was going to be our third single, but really our second single off of this Q-Full record. And I, I remember writing this and trying really hard to write a follow-up to Dancing in Heaven. And I remember going into... Um, Islington, I had a couple of great record shops, vinyl shops, and I remember going to the marketplace, I think in Camden, and I was picking up all the 12 inches of all the dance bands and all the um, uh, new techno bands and how 12 inches were being remixed, whatever. And I remember listening to Yazoo um, quite about that time and, and listening to their 12 inch remixes and thinking, I think I know how to do an arrangement which could be quite exciting on this song. Um, I wanted to do a almost anthem kind of song again because Dancing in Heaven was broken in America underground, but it was an anthem kind of big chant. And um, un unfortunately, uh, Wham! came out with a song called Go For It. I think Young Guns Go For It at the same time. Now, they were much better looking than me and Brian. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> We came out exactly the same time with with a song called Go For It. And them being such gorgeous pop stars and us being such studio-oriented workers behind the scene, um, it didn't help us at all, did it? Now, the track Go For It, again, was we a lot of the rhythm section was built at Tapestry Studios on a, a fair, fair light. And uh, Chris Richardson did some great work with programming. All the little horn riffs you hear and all the synchronized um, sequences that are grooving that happened on the spot uh chris was a tremendous musician i didn't have a lot of those horn riffs on the demo but as he loved the fairlight and the idea of um composing through numbers and through logic and so a lot of the those horn lines and the sequences that you'll hear on go for it appeared through chris experimenting um Again, Trevor was programming the drums, and uh, I'd had the demo worked out really tight on a four-track. What you hear here, it was a demo. I made the arrangement on a four-track. I've got to find that demo because it's it's extraordinarily close to what this record was. I'll say a bit more about it after, but this was supposed to be the follow-up to Dancing in Heaven, a track called Go For It. Yeah.
Left, right, left, right. <laughs> I'm in the army there for a second. Let's go for it. The last track on side one. Four tracks on side one. Um, and it was the well, our follow-up. We wanted, we thought it was going to be. And I wrote it for that reason, for Dancing in Heaven. Um, so many so many things I recall about this. As you can tell, we uh, and we pre- we prepared this. We recorded it as a 12-inch, a long, long mix, and then we would we thought that we would cut it down after the 12-inch was recorded uh, into a 7-inch kind of mix, which would have been about three minutes long instead of like 19 minutes long or seven minutes long, whatever this was. All those chants in the chorus. Um, um, were so syn- uh, syncopated because I loved Parliament and Bootsy Collins and um, George Clinton, you know, the funk. And so when I wrote the chorus, I really wanted a synchronised feel like Dancing in Heaven was. Of course, we sang one of those choruses with me and Brian and double-tracked and double-tracked, double-tracked. And, and of course, we flew, which means you you put the, the mix of that and two tracks onto a two-track tape machine and then you fly it in the other choruses. Otherwise, we'd have killed ourselves. I was trying to sing all that so after we got one perfect chorus we moved him um, and flew them in uh, by ear by ear from one tape machine to another into all the other choruses um, and there's a lot of that you know left right left right and uh, only takes a minute is a uh, is a uh, a Devo vibe, I think. I was listening to a lot of Devo and the way they would throw things out vocally and it really helped to have that around the edges of the of the track to bring excitement. Also, I can hear, I believe the song was in C minor and most it is a C minor track, I believe. And uh, uh, towards the end, you hear a B-flat chord sustaining like the, the seventh of the C minor and that's because I was listening to a lot of Prince, I Want to Be Your Lover. There was a lot of that going on, the, the seventh chord um, leading up to the major one and, and sustaining um, I remember when we finished this we were very excited we like we were very excited after we mixed it and record company was right above battery studio so I remember going upstairs and telling a couple of people to come down from the record company to hear this new track and I remember one guy was just so blown away we would turn all the lights off so it was really dark just a few flashing lights in the studio like UFOs and we played it ridiculously loud so that you had a hemorrhage and uh, your bowels went I mean but <laughs> <laughs> the record company were blown away I would say they were really blown away I remember the response of that so we played it to somebody in the afternoon uh, and one guy I remember him going like that's amazing that's going to be a great follow up um, complex bass line I mean I can remember even on the demo I was playing this all live between two fingers on my, both my hands it was almost uh, that's what I used to do in the 80s it was all two fingers going and um, I like the bass line the, the Zulus the low vocals it was either Chris or me and then slowed down after I did it my mother loved that she loved the ooh, nothing else but she just loved the ooh. she said that's so native and Zulu and I thought mm, at least mum likes that bit now Clive Davis was the head of Arista Records who Jive were joined to so in America our releases came out on Arista Records and Clive Davis um, I'll get to this story in part two but Clive Davis said this is a perfect follow up um, even though we questioned it and I'll tell you the story about that in, in the second part uh, in relation to a song called Heroes Never Die but Clive Davis said that is your club hit um, uh, and we just stared at him numbly and uh, we rebelled but I shall tell you that story later on 
Um, now, we, in those days, it wasn't automated mixing like it is on Pro Tools. Um, that came in much later. So, uh, Brian, myself, and all the engineers, including Matt to the Baker's Wallace, I believe, we all had our, our faders that we had to mix. It was a performance. And uh, for a track like this that went on for such a long time and was a 12-inch, we had, all had to learn what faders we were going to move. And then we went to mix it and send those 16 tracks down to two tracks. But if anybody made a mistake... Then you had to start all over again. At the end of a mix, we'd look at each other and say, did you do your part right? Yes. Did you do your part right? Well, and then we go, okay, we've got to do it again. And if anybody made a mistake, oh my God, they went through hell. And this went on for a, a long time. So in those days, it was all hands on board and it was live mixing. I remember as well that when we first came, Brian and myself, to America, uh, my manager, Diane Poncher, which I'd met in 1981, a wonderful, wonderful period as well, um, uh, we did a playback of the album to George Massenburg, who was to me the epitome of the greatest engineer in america at that time working for earth wind and fire and diane worked for earth wind and fire's management and she invited george massenberg who'd done all those great earth wind and fire records to the house to hear it so we did a playback to him and he was so interested in all the sounds uh, on the on the uh, on the album he was just fat because synthesizers and this music hadn't really happened uh, at, at that period and so we played him go for it and i remember him just looking at me and going what's that What's that sound? How did you do that? Uh, where did that come from? Uh, what what is what is that a is that an instrument or is that the toilet flushing? I mean, he <laughs> was fascinated, and uh, I still remember that mind my mind because George Massenburg was one of those kinds of engineers that you knew had made some of the greatest American recordings of the 1970s, and here he was saying to us. What the hell is this? I'm so interested. This is really really a move into the future. Well, we are at the end of part one. Over an hour we've done, and we're right at the halfway stage. So I want you to come back for part two, uh, where we'll be do uh, starting side two with Dancing in Heaven and all the other tracks, and maybe some rare mixes as well. Um, I hope you enjoyed the halfway stage. There was no way I was going to be able to uh, do it in one special. So this is episode 46 and episode 47 and a half will be the next episode, I believe. Um, thanks for being with me. Um, it's been great uh, remembering this stuff. Um, I nearly put on my space suit that I wore on the Eurovision Song Contest, which, uh, yes, I was singing Dancing in Heaven live to millions of people on TV. But uh, putting on that uh, space suit, uh, come American uh, footballer suit, would have been hard to do at this stage. It would have been very, very hard to do. I hope you've had great fun. I hope you uh, enjoyed going right back to the 80s. And I want you to join me for part two of the Q-Phil story. I think the revelations will be a lot of fun for you. And uh, we'll go out in the background with, uh, what they they, Dancing in Heaven, D-I-H. Yes, everybody puts everything just short, don't they? So the D-I-H Orbital Bebop song. And a lot of people didn't know that it was Orbital Bebop. They said, oh baby Bebop. No, it's Dancing in Heaven, Orbital Bebop. See you next time for part two on Radio Owl's Nest. The Q-Phil Story. 